Thank you, Lord. So, you know, we continue our path here through Matthew. And I think, you know, when we look at the, the Gospels, uh, we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and so on, we see that each one is, is telling a story from a particular angle, uh, an emphasis on Jesus from an angle. And one of the consistent things about Matthew is Matthew is showing that Christ is who he says he is. Uh, that everything is always attentive to what is Christ's response, never about anything else. You will see even here, it's about how does Christ respond in a teachable moment for us to know that he is who he says he is, and we can take great confidence in that and great joy. So let us read through Matthew chapter 12, 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mothers, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So we have a moment here where Jesus' family is trying to get to him, and he sort of stiff arms it. You know, I feel like in today's society, that'd be no big deal. Um, it'd be no big deal because we're at a moment in society where we've gone from the things that are held up as, as, as holy and, and, and separate from us to everything is now subjective. It's how I feel. It's what I think. And so therefore, you need to get on that train, and everything is good. So I think if we... Look at this. In today's climate, that's not that big of a deal. So Jesus gave his family a stiff arm. <laughs> I don't like my family either. I'd give them a stiff arm too. Or hey, maybe they just, he's estranged for me. He just doesn't really want to talk with them. Whatever it is, it would fit the norm of today. But at that time, it would not have fit the norm. It would have been totally different in that culture. And that's what we want to also think about and focus on as well. Uh, I was reading an article, and an article said, hey, there's a lot of variation in our nuclear family. This type of family can include any kind of commitment, not just marriage, and the parents can be same gender or non-gender binary or different genders. That's where we're at. But that's not where they were at that time. And it was significantly huge that Jesus once again went against the norm, the cultural norm or the understanding of that time. You know, in that time when Jesus was physically on the earth, the Jew of that day would have known this, that God created man. And he said, it's not good for man to be alone. He created woman. And then he said, well, then that man will leave his parents and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one. So they would have known that family is, a, is, a, is constituted by marriage through God. 
They would have known that marriage is ordained by God. They would have known that marriage is between one man and one woman. They would have known that marriage is characterized by leaving the authority structure of your parents and then joining together to form a new authority structure. They would have known that marriage is a covenant before God between man and woman. They have that in Proverbs and in Malachi. And God charged, they would have known that God charged the family structure to be fruitful and multiply. So whether that child come from the womb of the wife in that family or from the womb of another by way of adoption, nonetheless, that family is being fruitful and multiplying as the Lord has commanded. They also would have known about the individual family, connected, the extended family that you have, cousins, grandparents, all those things mixed in. They would have been very aware to the point that for you to not, and also just as a quick side note, they would have been aware about honor, the fifth commandment, honor your mother and your father. That is huge. That your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. So they would walk carefully on that. So for Jesus to hear that his mother wants to speak to him and he does, keeps on what he's doing, is actually extremely significant. Everything up to this point is focused on Jesus, as I said, as the promised Messiah. And we want to keep that focus. What is he saying? What is he teaching us in this? Everything Jesus is doing, as I mentioned before, is against the grain of what they had been taught. So each time, he was like a rebel to them, even though he was actually in the right. When we go back to the beginning in Matthew 12, we can see where his disciples were pulling heads of grain from the field to eat. And the Pharisees said, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing this. It's unlawful. And then he reminds them of David entering the house of God and eating the bread of presence. Or how the priests work on the Sabbath, but they're guiltless. Always saying, I desire mercy. Mercy. A right thinking, applying right care according to what God says, not what we say. The man with the withered hand was healed on the Sabbath, in which they didn't even understand. He had to tell them, well, if a sheep fell down the pit, would you not do any work to pull it out? How much more valuable is a human? Or the healing of a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, and they attributed that to the things of Satan. And he had to once again, as he went against the grain, to write thinking Tell them, well, let's think about this for a second. If what I'm doing is of Satan, and I'm just, uh, I'm just paraphrasing, if what I'm doing is of Satan, is it not Satan's job and his demonic forces to actually possess people and keep them from going to God? So if I was to cast out a demon, would I not be going against myself? Would that not be a house divided? In each of these scenarios, he's going against what they had been taught. Tell them how things should be. 
He is who he says he is. He's come down from heaven and he's explaining as the word in the flesh how it should be lived out. So the Jews of that day would have known enough about family and the Messiah that when he did this, this was huge. It was another teachable moment. For the Jews and the Gentiles and the New Testament churches that were to launch after Jesus' ascension and the Holy Spirit indwelling in the disciples and believers, all the way right now to this local church, it is always a teachable moment. I cannot emphasize it enough. When we look at Scripture, we don't want to look at it as just Scripture. We want to look at it as, what is a holy God telling me my marching orders is? of how to live him out in this scenario. So, this passage is called Jesus' Spiritual Family. And there's three areas we want to focus on and pay attention to. The position of the spiritual family, that's 46 through 48, the makeup of the spiritual family, and the call of the spiritual family. So repeat after me. The position of the spiritual family, the makeup of the spiritual family, and the call of the spiritual family. So here we go. Let's dive in. The position of the spiritual family. Did you know that Jesus had an earthly family? We say, of course. But he had brothers and sisters. See, when Jesus incarnate in the womb of Mary, took on this flesh, born of this virgin. As you know, Mary was married to Joseph. And after Jesus' birth, there were brothers and sisters, more kids that they had. And that actually is spelled out in Matthew 13, 55, where they say, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brother Brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they at all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? He's trying to figure out, how is he speaking what he's speaking? But one of the things that we can ascertain from this, from our understanding of where they were, that Jesus' family may not at that moment have been at the same place to understand fully who he really was. And this may have been part of why this scene has occurred. In John chapter 7, 3 through 5, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to, go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one wants to become a public figure, acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe him. They didn't even know. I think they're, they're, in this, it's almost as if he's trying to so if you want to become popular, you got to get an Instagram account, you got to get your YouTube channel going, you get your Facebook thing going, you got to do it live. If you want to be known, this is what you need to do. Imagine they ate, played, talked, slept next to the Messiah, God in the flesh, and they didn't even know it. That's incredible. So if we ask the question, what did his family want with him? At this point in his ministry, we can exercise some understanding that they really didn't understand the fullness of who he was and may not have understood at all. Because if they had known who he fully was, 
they would not have interrupted him. They would not have interrupted him. Listen, we all love our families. Anyone who knows me knows that my mother is, 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 is someone I love dearly. She worked her butt off to take care of me. So there's strong love. She would not come in the middle of me talking right now and interrupt us. She would not. Because one, knowing the Savior, she knows the value of what we all are doing here. Not about me, what we all are doing here. So she would not disrupt that. So we can surmise that maybe they did not understand that. When you read through 46 through 48, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking them to speak to him. Anyone have the ESV? Do you notice there's not a verse 47? There's no verse 47. Now, in the Amplified, in the NIV, in the King James, in the New King James, there is a verse 47. If you go down the footnotes of the ESV as a side note, it will actually explain to you some manuscripts insert, insert this verse. Someone told him your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. Because 46 and 47 at the end, they virtually say the same thing. So there's well over 5,000 different Greek manuscripts, and there's some slight variances here and there in, in the breakdown of that. So in this particular case, the ESV, they chose to omit that because they felt it said the same thing, 46 and 47. While in the King James and New King James and Amplified and the whole litany of other, of other options, they did not. So that's why it's admitted. And basically, it should account for that in the footnotes of your ESV. I digress. Let's move forward. In verse 46, we find that Jesus was still busy talking to a multitudes of people that had gathered around him inside a house. Notice that Jesus' mothers and brothers were outside. Now we gather more insight when we turn to Luke 8, 19. states that his mother and brothers came to him, and they weren't able to get to him because of the crowd. So they were trying to get to him, but the crowd was there. That's pretty understandable because he had recently returned to Capernaum with the twelve after proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God in cities and villages of Galilee and performing miracles, and people were following him. And whether they just wanted to piece them for their own thing, or whether they truly believed, there was lots of people following him. And when he was back, and they heard he was back in that house, they were there. So his family could not get to him. Jesus had become so busy with the multitudes that he and his disciples did not even have leisure to eat a meal. Full of compassion for these people, he skipped eating in order to minister to them. And Mark 3.21 records that when Jesus' family heard that he was not even taking a break to eat, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. Told you they didn't understand. Hey, I know we say if you do that YouTube thing and Instagram thing, but you need to take time to eat, man. It's not all that. So clearly, this was a teachable moment. He clearly loved his family. He was the eldest brother, and he would have been responsible for looking after his family, so, which we will go into in a moment. He did do that very thing while he was on the cross and provided for his mother. Speaking of the cross, when he, we'll just go back there, when he was on the cross as the oldest son, he looks at his apostle John and says, 
what? He says to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to him, his son, behold your mother. And John took care of her until her last days, as far as we know. So he definitely loved his mother. And he continually loved him because we find that his half-brothers eventually come to believe in him as their Lord and Savior. We find Mary and his mother and his brothers in Acts 1.14 as part of the assembly in the upper room after his ascension to heaven, devoted themselves to prayer while they waited for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Wow, that's huge. As a side note, it says a lot about, for those of you who have unsaved family members, you're to keep being faithful, praying for them, and trusting that God has a great plan. And that's not to be interrupted. Sometimes we can get distorted. One of the things that Jesus shows here is that I stay focused. I'm staying focused. Still love, that's the best way to love his family. Stay focused on what the Father has in store. And the Father will play it out well. Why is this so important? Who is the father of our spiritual family? I think I just said it. Who is the father of our spiritual family? It is God the Father, correct? So one of the things that he's doing here when he puts aside his earthly family, he's not saying that the earthly family is of no good, but what he's doing, he's elevating his spiritual family. He's elevating the spiritual family as of top importance. That's the position. Why? Why is that most importantly? Because the head of that spiritual family is God the Father. And that goes back to what he says in verse 50, to do the will of the Father. Those are people that are part of his family. So this is a great example for us. Our spiritual family has priority and pecking order over our earthly family because the will of the Father, who's father of our spiritual family says so. That doesn't mean that you're ignoring your earthly family. It doesn't mean that you're ignoring every single moment of your earthly family. What it does say is that when we put our spiritual family first, then we're doing the will of the head of that spiritual family and all the other relationships under that, including our earthly ones, will be best done by the will of the head of our spiritual family, who is our God, God the Father. And I don't know about you, I often sometimes find myself doing it the exact opposite. I do the earthly family sometimes first, sometimes to a, to a fault, and have to be caught and say, whoa, he will take care of this. You need to work on what he's called you to do here. Jesus explained this Spiritualities by telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus gives him, what, I must go back in my mother's womb? What is this all about? The basics. When a human being is born into the family of God, that means they have repented of their sins and they put their faith in Jesus. They didn't get there by any other way. He tells us in Ezekiel 36, 26 that I will take a heart of stone. I always say this because it's so fascinating that God the Father says this. I will take a heart of stone. I will turn it to a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. We're not causing ourselves to walk in his statutes. He's causing us to walk in his statutes. And therefore, in the midst of that, 
we do have free will to accept what he's so generously laying upon us before our feet. So when a human is born in the family of God, it's because of the work the Father has already done in them. And now they are receiving what has been so freely given. God is also the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So think about this. When we share in the relationship as adopted children, then Jesus our brother purchased with his blood has a right to call us, has a right to call for right for us to call his father our father. His father is our father because now through Jesus, we've been grafted, adopted back in to the spiritual family of God. And as a reminder, what's so significant is about this is that in the beginning, when Adam and Eve walked blamelessly, they were in the right place with God. And then once sin was committed, they no longer could be in his presence. And I think that's something that we can't think enough of. Because of sin, and as the scriptures say, one line, you're guilty of them all. You break one law, you're guilty of them all. We can't earn our way back to God. It is so significant. Sin is so significant that we are no longer of God. We are an enemy of God. We're against him. So it's so significant that when Jesus died on the cross and shed blood, for our sins, that through that we are adopted back into the very spiritual family that we were kicked out of because of sin. Very significant. So the expectation is following the command of the Father so that, again, everything else that flows under it is done through the Father's will. So Jesus showed that the priority was not his family but him teaching the truth and delivering the gospel, which was the reason why he was sent on this earth in the first place. Let me ask you this. What are you doing through the teaching of the word of God to prioritize your spiritual family and help build it up? Why do I ask that? Because so often one of the things I see, and I'm easily guilty in a part of it, is that we can become so busy with trying to love on each other through our flesh that we forget that we need to point each other to the gospel and we should care enough about each other. We want to see each other grow and be stretched. So it's either I look at my brother and say, go and be well. And then his house is burning down to the last ember. Well, brother, I did see that, but I just didn't want to offend you. But now your house is on fire down to the last ember. You know, or we go in with a mindset is I'm not here to beat my brother up, but I am here to point them to the Father in heaven, and they're here to point me to the Father in heaven because, as it says in Ephesians, we all are to mature so then we're not tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine. And I think this is huge because we don't do enough of this in the local church. This is why we're so subject to all the confusion we see outside right now because we see all the social injustices, and it looks good what people are doing, so people who are weak in the faith go along with that, or they just don't know Christ whatsoever, but they go along with it because it looks good. But yet we know that there's nothing happening on this earth that hasn't already happened in which we can turn to the scriptures to get truth. So the first thought is, let's turn to our Heavenly Father. Let's turn to the very Word of God. So I ask, what are you doing through the teaching of the Word of God to prioritize your spiritual family and help build it up? Because I've come to the understanding I'm not doing enough. 
that I just tongue-in-cheek and I smile at my brother and go about my business. Not having the hard conversations that, brother, I'm not trying to beat you up, but let me tell you what I've just learned. Let me point you in that direction, and please do the same for me. So the position of the spiritual family is one that is above, elevated above our earthly family, because it points to the Father in heaven. Next, the makeup of our spiritual family. Let's read 49 through 50. And stretching out his hand towards the disciple, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Who makes up the spiritual family? Who does he say? You can yell it out. Disciples. Who else? Those who do the will of the Father. You could, is that one and the same? Disciples and those who do the will of the Father? You think so? <laughs> I'm just playing with you. But that's <laughs> well, let's think about this. What are disciples? Let's go to Acts 2.38. Peter replied, they, he had preached the truth, and they said, what must we do? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in Ezekiel 36, 26, which I mentioned before, God says that he does a work in our heart, he puts the Spirit in us, and he calls us to walk in his statutes. And Jesus said in John 8, 31, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. What is a disciple? First, a disciple is a learner or a student, one who learns. The 12 whom Jesus called to his closest companion were with him day and night. They had a personal relationship with him. They walked with him. They ate with him. They shared in his conversation. They observed the way he lived. They listened to him preach to the crowds. They did life. But they weren't following Jesus just to enjoy his presence, right? As Jesus' disciples, they had a purpose to learn from him, absorb his teaching, learning from his example, even profiting from his rebukes. Remember what he said to Peter? He said that out of love. Get behind me, ye Satan. Right now, brother, you're being used as an instrument of Satan. That's real love right there, that you would actually tell a brother, you're not in a good place right now. So to be a disciple is to be a learner, but not just a learner. Because are we just to be taught and then to hold on to it with dear life and then to go hide in the corner? No. James 1, 22, 26 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who mocks, who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. You know, I had to think about that. Have you ever done that before? You ever look at yourself in the mirror and walk away and go, ah, I don't think I was right on my back. Now it makes me think about that a lot. How many times have I done that? A person who looks at themselves in the mirror and instantly forgets and has to go back to the mirror again. It means there's nothing there. Nothing there. So a disciple, a disciple is one who learns, a disciple who wants, who's one and goes and tells others. So 
The spiritual family is made up of disciples, people who have repented of their sins, they learn about Jesus, they go tell others, so more can be grafted into the spiritual family, and they can repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus, and they can go tell others. What about ethnicity? Is there any ethnicity thing going on here? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Yeah, this is huge. Galatians 3.28, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. This is very important because I think, again, in this current state right now, we're getting lost into the issues of different cultures and trying to figure out how to best handle it, but we already have the roadmap because it was already handled by Jesus. So because we don't turn to it, we turn to our fleshly means. And so this skin color was given to me by Jesus, but it's not for me to worship. It's not my God. So matter of fact, when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus, we actually form a new nation. We are a new nation of believers with multiple colors, showing the diverseness in God's creation, but we're all focused on one thing. I'm not focused on me being an African-American. You're not focused on being white. You're not focused on being Asian. You're just focused on Jesus. Now, you can look at each other and say, oh, that's great, and talk about some of the cultural things, which the cultural things are the things we learn in the area that we live in, but we don't prop those up as the main thing. And that's what we're so caught up into now, and that's why people are getting so tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine, because they see someone that says, well, I got a problem over here. Oh, Okay, let me help you. I got a problem over here. Oh, let me help you too. Well, where's Jesus in this? It's like I said, where's Waldo? Where's Jesus in this? He's, he's taking care of all this. Need I remind you that the Jews were under the most, one of the most brutal empires in the existence of our history, the Roman Empire. And even when Jesus died on the cross, he did not remove all the oppression from them at that time, did he? So, because he came to take care of the root of it, something that I've talked about before, he came to take care of the root cause of it. Then when he returns, all the other part will be taken care of. Colossians 3.11, he writes, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And I think this is one of the things that... Um, we can't talk enough about as we, and that's one of the things Pastor Cleet did a, a great job of talking about when he was talking about what is the church, and he said, hey, listen, we're ambassadors, and so this local church is an embassy. That is true, and the embassy is, is germane to the place it came from, so it's in a foreign land. But often what you see what happens right now is everyone tries to make the embassy, our local church, like the foreign land, to appease the foreign land. And in here regardless of what color you are and where you come from, if there's real repentance and faith in Jesus, we are now all one new nation. And this local church, which I'm still learning to have greater and greater respect for because, listen, I'm a work in progress. And so this local church is our heavenly representation. It's the only thing we have on this planet. So we must approach this local church with greater reverence and awe, knowing that Christ is the head of it. But we must seek and understand that it's diverse. It is diverse with all people groups. 
So let us hear each other's petition, but point each other to the one true God who takes care of it all. You can't keep up with all the multitude of cultural norms and issues there are. Everyone's got something they want someone to hear, and they got a group to represent it. You will never get any work done. You won't be able to breathe. But God takes care of it. And as just a final reminder, in Ephesians 2, 4, 6, 4 through 16, for he himself, our peace, who has made the two groups, one has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Did I just say that? Hostility. There we go. Setting aside his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. I keep hearing people talk about racial reconciliation in the churches, and I, and I thought that Christ already reconciled us. First, we're reconciled to the Father in heaven, now we're reconciled to each other. So there is no more racial reconciliation. There's a recognition that in the fallen world, we're off the tail ends of different cultural dominations, of different ethnic, one ethnos dominating another ethnos, but that's not something we hang on to. We understand where we are. And we understand that the only way to melt that together is for any person of any color to get on their knees, repent of their sins, put their faith in Jesus, and now they will see that they're part of one new nation. I was talking to a brother. He came, Actually, we had two. One came in here one time, and I won't say what denomination he was from, but he was really hung up on Jesus plus diets how you eat. Something he saw in Genesis, and I couldn't remember what it was, but I, I, I know what this particular denomination, what they're hanging on. I said, well, brother, where do you see this in Scripture? He goes, I don't, but it, it's, it's right here in, in, in Genesis and so on. I said, but and he kept saying that it's, it's Jesus plus this, this special diet, and I kept saying, so in the family of God, do you see that Jesus and the disciples talked about this? Well, no, but it's very important. That's the point. See, we hang on to Jesus plus pieces of things and tell, us, tell ourselves it's okay. This is huge. This is huge as we get into the next piece, the call of the spiritual family. What does it mean to do the will of God? And I just did even separate searches just to look. And there's, I mean, from Genesis all the way to Revelations, right, you get the will of God. But there's one thing that wraps it all up. John 6, 28 through 29, where Jesus is being questioned by the multitude about what they should do to work the works of God and gain eternal life. And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Ultimately, the will of God is for us to believe in Jesus. And Jesus tells us, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Now, this is huge because... When we say yes, but so often we're not doing it, right? I'm not doing it. And it comes out when we're doing things like, you know, maybe we have a home group, or we have Bible studies, whatever, and we're, we're presented with something, and then what comes out is, well, I was wondering about it. Oh, I didn't really think that was that big of a deal. Eh, it was okay. So I, I love to bring out what they call controversial things. Let's talk about tongues, okay? I had a brother that I was walking with, and he, he said, you know, well, I'm part of this group, and, you know, we speak in tongues, and we prophesy, and so on. I said, that always 
perplexes me because I keep looking for the scriptures on which you see that continually, and I just don't see that. And so I started showing them scriptures and said, listen, this is great, but when they were speaking in tongues, they were actually speaking the gospel. They were speaking truth. They weren't just speaking in tongues and speaking in tongues. And also in 1 Corinthians, I think it's 14, he gives you the framework in which tongues is and is not. So if we go outside of that framework, now we're saying that God's okay with it. When we do that, we blaspheme against him. We lie against Christ. So what I'm saying, when we talk about loving Christ, we keep the word of God as it is. And if we don't see it, we don't follow it. That's, that's the marching order. But you often find so much in our talk. We have so much stuff that we say, oh, God's okay with this. Did you see it in Scripture? Did you see it in the life of the prophets and disciples beforehand, or is it directly in the Word of God? And if it's not, we don't hang on to it. So when I told this brother, hey, listen, this is not in Scripture what you're doing, he's like, but, but we pray, we do all this stuff. I said, we really think that we, when we have these emotional moments, that it's something always under God. Do you realize how powerful Satan really is? To the, only to the extent that God allows, but nonetheless, the dark forces are very powerful. There's a lot of things that may seem good that have nothing to do with God. This is why we have to turn to the scriptures. Whatever's in the scriptures, that's what we specifically follow. That's what we pray for. The spirit will do a work in so then we can grow into. If it's not in the scriptures, we run away from it until we have better understanding. Another thing we talked about, and I'll just give an example of this. Uh, Pastor Cleet has done a great job of talking about the, the church being, like I said before, uh, an embassy and so on. And, and we, started, we got to the online church. And it, it was like, well, can you still be in a church gathering and, and be online? And I don't know why. Just, you know how there's certain things that just get you in a moment? And before I heard someone say, no, that was me. <laughs> We all have our little things that we're passionate about. But here's the thing. I was thinking about the details of this, an application. So you have a brother that's in school, and the brother cannot attend church service at the moment because he's in the midst of this time of year. It is what it is. So do I say to that brother to make him feel good, brother, you can attend church online, and it'll be the same thing. It's like you're there and it's all good. Or if I said to him, brother, you can't attend church physically. You can't be a part of the church gathering, but you can view the online service and glean from what's being preached and still studied until the time comes that you can physically gather with the body. One points him to the truth of what we see in Scripture. The other makes an assumption on the God, which we don't see in Scripture. So how are we really looking after our brother? You look after your brother or your sister by pointing him to only what you see in Scripture, not what you feel and what you think. Because, go back to Ephesians 4. We are supposed to mature so then we're not thrown back and forth by every wind of doctrine. So if we really love each other, we don't want to see our brothers and sisters go back and forth by everyone to doctrine. So the only way we can do that is by pointing each other to the truth in God, as is. And I know what happens, and it happens with me too, if we don't see it in Scripture, we feel like we need an answer to make it seem good. And we have to avoid that if we're really going to love on each other. Does that make sense, family? 
So to do the will of God is really to be all things Jesus. And Jesus commands us, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. You'll do the works that I do. So we stick to Jesus only, what it says in the Bible. So we want to continually give an account of the things that we say that really point people away from God and don't really confirm what we already see in the Scriptures. Faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah sent from God is the will of God and is part of your response to the working of the Holy Spirit on your soul in which you do the will and work of God. We can go back to Genesis 3.15 and we can see the beginning of God telling us about Jesus, all things Jesus. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The striking of the heel is Jesus being on the, on the cross. The crushing of the head is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, showing that he defeated Satan, that he defeated death. There's a crushing of the head. So we have to remember that we actually battle a defeated foe, and they already know that they're defeated. Remember what the demon said? Why are you here? Are you here to mess with us before our appointed time? They know the time is coming for them, that they've already lost. So family, we can take heart and rejoice that the things we're dealing with, we've already won. So that's, how, that's why it should become by, by grace of God and the working of the spirits, we cling to Jesus even more. He's already won for us, so now we just cling to his word, and it will make life that much simpler for us instead of trying to Jesus up our own way. In John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Jesus says that those who are in his spiritual family are those who would do the will of God, which is those who hear the word of God and obey it, which is all things Jesus. Let me ask you, how is Jesus the center of your life, and what is the fruit on it? How is Jesus the center of your life, and what is the fruit on it? I'm not saying that you're all of a sudden perfect in everything. He's doing a work in us. But let's think about this. We say Jesus is the Lord of our life, then what does that look like in fruit? What does that look like? I have four different applications I want to bring up. And there's things that we can add more to it, but just basics that we've heard before, but we can't hear it enough. We should show ourselves approved by studying the Word of God as it is. So we're not tossed back and forth. We must throw away the thought of, listen, our feelings are important. Our thoughts are important, but they're under God's. That's why he says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways and my thoughts are higher than yours. Not the other way around. So we can gently encourage each other to keep doing that. We must show ourselves approved, confirm our election by studying the word of God the way it is. Look at the context. Look at what's happening. Where do you see Jesus in it? What's the marching order? Pray for application to go live it out. We must pursue without ceasing a vibrant prayer life. 
this is extremely important because prayer is an acknowledgement that God holds together everything and that we're relying on him to take care of any particular thing in our life or to thank him as well. I was just in a study with, uh, through the book of Daniel, and I can see how Daniel just first acknowledged his holiness before he brings his application. We learn from the prophets and the saints before us. That's what we do. We go before God and let's acknowledge the attributes of God, who he is. You're a holy God. You're omnipotent. You're all-knowing. All those things. And in that prayer, let's be thankful. Let's thank him. When we actually have to spend time to look at the things in our day to thank God for, that will cause growth because you're specifically saying, I know God is intimately involved, and sometimes I'm on fast train that I look past it, so let me stop and give an account of what he actually has done in my life for the day. Let's stop and give an account. Let me thank him. And then let's bring that supplication. Let's bring our prayers and ask. And let's ask that our prayers are aligned with him. But he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong intentions. So we want a prayer life that is aligned with what the Father in heaven wants. So we must show ourselves the proof by studying the word of God as it is. We must pursue without ceasing a vibrant prayer life. We must share what we claim we believe and why we believe it. For Jesus' spiritual family, God the Father is the head of that. He loves us. He sent Jesus to rescue us. And if we have Jesus in us, then we're going to love others and want them to be rescued also in increasing fashion, not perfectly, but in increasing fashion. Even with just a few baby steps here and there, we must share what we claim we believe. For if we do not share it, then we are in an immature state. That's just flat out. Many times I did not share things because I was scared and was immature in it. And still scared at times. You have a moment where you feel like, man, the Lord lays it out and you can share something. Other times you're like, I am really scared to share this. And last, we must be willing to lose relationships for the sake of the gospel. I think too often we're trying to hang on to everything and thinking that that's a ministry. The ministry is not what you say, but what God tells you it is. And Jesus lost a lot of people and was willing to lose his family and stayed on point with what the Father in heaven bid him to do. And so must we. We can get so caught into this, we want to love on people that we forget that God already has provided the roadmap. So I'll give you a, one quick example of that, and we'll close up it. So I, we're going to go into communion, and, and, and then we talk about the will of the Father. The will of the Father is that we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And so... Um, one of the things that we were struck with as a leadership is that sometimes we felt there was too many people taking communion, and when we looked at what was going on in their life, that maybe they weren't in the best place. So we started to proactively start to say, hey, listen, this is what communion is all about, which you'll hear me say. We'll talk about what communion is all about and who it's for, and that's not to offend anyone. That really is just to keep in line, because if you go in 1 Corinthians 11, God goes on later on and say that you will bring judgment on yourself if you... If you come to communion with wrong intentions or you have not cleared out. If you have unrepentant sin and you're aware of it, you should not partake in communion. So I had a person that got disturbed with us because we said that because they had a family member that got offended. So we went back and forth and back and forth. And they were like, well, but, but, but 
they let Judas go ahead and still do it. I say, but Judas hung himself. Is that what you want? Well, no. I don't want Judas to hang himself. See, that's the whole point. They were hung up on needing that person on their terms. We need to be hung up on that God calls us on his terms. So we can trust in God and stop trying to manage everything. Stop trying to manage how people, what they say back and whether or not they receive things. If God was already rejected first, then we're going to be rejected second, right? So let's just make sure that we come with, pray for grace and humility as we approach each other, for sure. But by no means should we shrink back and try to hold on to someone at the cost of pushing aside Jesus. So we must show ourselves approved by studying the word of God. We must pursue without ceasing a vibrant prayer life. We must share what we claim we believe and why we believe. We must be willing to lose relationship for the sake of the gospel. So Jesus' is spiritual family, the position of the spiritual family is one that's elevated above the earthly family. The makeup of the family are all those who are disciples, who have repented of sins and put their faith in Jesus. And the calling of the spiritual family is all things Jesus.